Welcome to Wine and Murder Night, a podcast where two friends discuss and drink about their favorite cozy mysteries. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. And I'm Sabrina Malshausen. And it's finally fall. I am an autumn and winter girl. Not just my coloring, but also <laughs> but also um, the seasons. I I have reverse I have legitimately been diagnosed with reverse SAD, which means heat and humidity affect me um, negatively. Would and you call it HAP? <laughs> you can't see the face I'm making, but I'm making a face. Oh, <laughs> no, it's just called RSAD. That's not, that's not a good name. No, we're calling it HAP from now on. All right. I have, I have HAP and living in uh, the southeast of America is bad. It's bad for me. Very bad. Well, so my thing was I decided that I was going to make it feel good fall. And that there Ah. were... I was not going to punish myself. That only works if you call it fall, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, that's why I'm calling it fall. Awesome autumn. Awesome autumn. Awesome autumn also works. There you go. But the the idea was that I'm not going to, A, punish myself for not meeting goals that I set that are like entirely uh, in my head, you know, like, oh, you didn't lose two pounds this week. You're a terrible person and a failure mm-hmm. at life. Like, that's stupid. Don't do that. And I'm not going to wait to do the things I want to do. And I'm just going to feel good and do them. Yeah. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what the poshest thing ever is? Oh, geez. Okay. So the Guardian has this thing called The Long Read, and they put it in podcast form. And one of the podcasts that I listened to was about this woman who who worked as a maid in New York, and she talked about her clients' houses. And I know this... Oh, I sound terrible. I have a housekeeper, and she comes every Monday, but we know each other. We've been friends for a while. Um, we went to high school together. But this article made me think, holy shit, what does she think when she comes to do my house on Monday. Like, what does she think of my dirty dishes in the sink? Or, like, when she hoovers? What does she think about the person who's living there and paying her to clean her house for various reasons? And it's not that I keep an unclean house because I'm never here. I work constantly because I'm a fucking teacher and you can't do anything. And so, like, I'm never here. And even there are hoover marks in my house when she comes back the next Monday. So it's obvious that I'm, I'm not an unclean person. But I still wonder, like, she puts everything in order, but what does she think about the things that she has to put in order? I don't have a housekeeper. But my mom has a housekeeper. And this is the kind of family that I was raised in. Because uh, my grandma does this too. Before her housekeeper comes, she cleans. I tidy, but I don't clean. She, well, she like, so she'll never leave dirty dishes out. Ever, ever, ever. Never, ever. The reason I have the housekeeper instead of washing dishes because I can't fucking stand washing dishes. No, but I'm just saying, this is the kind of person that my mom is. Then she she shouldn't have a fucking housekeeper. Like, well, (laughs) I I don't. She likes the having the housekeeper because, like, the housekeeper will do the things that'll, like, get baseboards and all, you know, all of that stuff that no one ever wants to actually do. But, like, yeah, she can't handle. At one point, I remember I lived in my old house and my grandma was coming to visit. And so I cleaned. And then my mom went back around and cleaned after me. Well, that's like, because how she's one of those goddamn <laughs> fucking baby boomer assholes who don't think that we can do anything. 
And it's not that my mother does the same thing. My mother doesn't know that I have a housekeeper and she will never know because she <laughs> would tear me a new arsehole. Like, and I'm sorry. It's just, that's just generational and I don't give a fuck. I hate washing the dishes. <laughs> I hate it. I absolutely, it's my least favorite thing. And I have a dishwasher, so she doesn't even wash all the dishes. She washes the dishes that can't go in the dishwasher. And she does all the other shit, but I don't clean because that's what I pay her to do. I mean, I don't disagree. I have kind of always wanted a housekeeper and never... Holy shit. If this is feel-good fall, maybe I should get a housekeeper. I mean, yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a housekeeper because she's paying off student loan debts and has multiple other jobs. And <laughs> since she's a friend... I was like, not only do I have the money, I'm going to support her because it's direct action, you know? Yeah. But it's the kind of direct action where Karl Marx would shake his head at me. And, I'm, and I, I realize this. I realize this. I'm sorry, Marx. But it's, you know, whatever. I'm not that sorry, Marx. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but oh, that reminds me, I have to, I have to message her and ask her to come in on Tuesday. Uh, because I forgot to bring home my travel mugs from work, and that's usually what she cleans. And if she doesn't have them, I'm not cleaning them myself, and I'm not letting them get another week. Uh, I'm sorry, I just I don't, and I refuse. <laughs> like, like as long as I live in this godforsaken place, I want to come home to a house that smells of Honeycrisp apple and has Hoover marks on the floor. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, I feel it. I feel you. I feel you. It's about making making yourself feel good in what ways you can. Yes. Awesome autumn. Awesome autumn. <laughs> I mean, I guarantee you the people in today's episode of Father Brown have a housekeeper. Yes. <laughs> so what are you drinking today as we go into episode three? I am drinking a 2016 Pique Poule de Pinay. It is a white... Wine from France. It's a dry white wine from France. I got it at I got it at Lidl for nine ninety nine. No, eight ninety nine. So for nine dollars. Nice. So we're getting there. We're getting there. My mother obviously. <laughs> we're just so me. close. We're so close. <laughs> I am drinking a uh, twenty fifteen Pinot Noir, which is my favorite kind of wine, and this is called Firesteed, and it is the last bottle from my housewarming party collection. Mm. It's quite good. Mm. Are you ready to get right into it? I am. I am. We're watching Season 1, Episode 3, The Wrong Shape. Right into this, it was like, oh, this is an episode about spirituality because you hear that flute that you only ever get in music when it's like trying to be... Oriental. Oriental, but exotic spirituality. I don't even know if they do it, like, just specifically for Oriental, because I feel like it comes up a lot when you have, like, the wise Native American man trope, yes. too. But it's it's that non-Christian, like, non-Western spirituality. It's the, it's the pan flutes. So it's that, you know, blowing across instead of trans. Yeah, it's the pan flute of this is not from here. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but in the very opening, you do see an Indian man run into this house. Five big mansion. 
our father brown new listeners what a five british actor is because if you were just joining us you've probably been very confused so the bbc is very cheap <laughs> <laughs> and they have a state i mean the bbc is also very old and they have a very large stable of people who have done shows for them either radio shows television shows and so as you watch bbc productions um you will start to see patterns of people showing up. And you will see the same people showing up constantly. So, hence, five British actors. And those five British actors are just, oh, that guy is from XYZ show. Or that lady was in that film with that bloke. And you know you know them. And it's when you go to IMDb and you're like, ha ha, that's how I know them. And there are four of them. So almost all five of the five British actors make an appearance in this episode. See, I didn't have a single one. So these are only five British actors. Like, I guess my British actorness isn't up to par. Well, I didn't recognize you this guy know at all. all of these shows. I didn't. Maybe. Maybe it was just, I was, I will say I watched this on Thursday Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty confident most of our listeners are American, but for those who aren't, that was a U.S. politics shit show day. (laughs) It was pretty rough. It was pretty rough. It was bad. And uh, I definitely, I was like using Father Brown to block out everything else in the world. So That's hysterical because I did not watch it until yesterday. Yesterday being Friday, and it was because I was gonna watch it before we recorded. Oh it. my fucking god! Now sorry. Now that I'm looking him up, I straw like I just it was the hair. I didn't recognize him with the hair. Yeah, it's Death in Paradise and Midsummer Murders. Well, so I just saw his Midsummer Murders episode like three months ago, and I was like, that guy is super duper hot. And in this one, <laughs> I was not like, this guy is hot at all. <laughs> so. Not only, not only is he a five British actor, he's a five British actors of shows that A, we've talked about, and B, we may talk about in future. So, there you go. R- Ramon uh, Takaram. Yes. I don't actually know how to say his last name. No, the biggest thing that he's actually known for, and if anybody plays video games, you will know who he is oh, yeah. right off the bat. I don't play is... video games, sir. Right. No, no, no. I don't either. But I was like, oh, this guy has a great voice. He should do voice acting. No, he plays Dorian in Dragon Age Inquisition, who is one of the main characters and is very well known. Ah, excellent. (laughs) No, I know him because he's a BBC five British actor. Is a five British actor. But anyway, so he runs into this house in a panic and you see like a flash of a woman looking out a window, very worried. But he calls Mr. Leonard. He's the Sahib. Another, another five British actor. Cheerio, back soon. I don't know somehow. I'm Misham. I love you. That's why I'm Cheerio. Goodbye. Oh, is he? Yes. <laughs> Didn't again. Didn't yeah. recognize him. So what has he done? He's in Emmerdale, remember, with the uh, U.S. Communist. Oh, right. But he's also in DCI Banks, and if you've never seen DCI Banks, DCI Banks is one of those. Uh, Scandinavian noirs that are set in England, 
And it's so good. It's set in the North, which is why I love it, because um, DCI Banks has a very um, Yorkshire accent, which reminds me of Nathan. Nathan was from the North as well. So it's set up in Yorkshire, and he plays... I, I don't know if he's the the bad guy in it, but he plays... He's in it in two episodes, and he, he plays quite a big role in DCI Banks. If you've not seen it, Carol, you should. I don't know if you like the... British Scandinavian walls, but yes, you do because you were watching Shetland. DCI yeah, Banks. I'm watching, yeah, I'm watching Shetland like right now. DCI, yeah, DCI Banks is Shetland in Yorkshire. Okay, I will check it out. So yeah, there we go, another five percent. I'm not done. <laughs> no, we're only halfway through the list. Yes. Uh, well, but the reason that he is so Dorian is so upset. I forget his real name, but I did write it down. Uh, the reason Dorian Umesh. is so upset. Umesh is so upset is that he has, he just basically rushes in and he's like, Mr. Leonard, you're going to die today. And then we cut to title. We had literally like a 30 second open and then we cut to title, which don't get me wrong, it's fine. And in fact, more normal than what happened last time. I know. But also, I would like some consistency. Yeah. No, I actually like the inconsistent nature of it because it's more realistic now, it is a cozy mystery, so it's it shouldn't be that realistic, but I, I still like it. Also, of course there's going to be a dramatic cut after you're going to die today. Of course there's right? going to be, like... Well, what, I guess my point is more so that, like, last episode, it was so long. Mm-hmm. Like, it shouldn't have been so long. More so than this episode did it wrong. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I preferred the way they did it this episode. Yeah. Then last episode. Well, the second yeah. episode, I don't know, the, the, the last episode wasn't great, so there were a lot of yeah. issues with it. So anyway, so we go from cut to title uh, to the church, and there's singing going on, and Lady Felicia swans in. and Looking a picture in her red dress. I love that dress. That's I absolutely so good. love that dress. Yeah. That's perfect. It is perfect. So I have a tailor. It's online. <laughs> We're going from, I wonder what my housekeeper thinks of me too. I have a tailor. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I, I'm not, I, I'm exceeding, I'm old labor with money-ish, but as a teacher, I have zero monies. Don't, don't, I don't, don't uh, think I have. You're living, it's like, it's like a Pinterest life, but for like posh Britishness. That's very true. So, <laughs> it's like your Pinterest wish, <laughs> like your <yes>. mood board. <laughs> I know, and I, but I actually have a tailor, and I have been having dresses made for a while now, and they're all that fitted in the waist kind of flary type, and mm-hmm. so like every time I see Lady Felicia's dresses, I go and see if I could find something similar have made for me because I only look good in dresses because they cover up all the shit I hate about myself. Which is <laughs> <laughs> the point. Exactly. But I thought my favorite thing here is that literally she's like swanning into this church to invite him to a poetry recital. And obviously Mrs. McCarthy is there and she is like, oh, we're doing actual church things. You have to go away now. But then she finds out who the poetry recital is for and mm. invites herself along. Ah, yes. Man, good old Mrs. McCarthy. But Father Brown is extremely confused as to why Quentin would invite him specifically. But they Ooh. will find out soon. 
so Mrs. McCarthy is trying to gossip about the poet and Lady Felicia shuts her down. I love how Lady Felicia shuts her down. She's like, like you, I don't like to gossip. <laughs> it's so good. But she does drop some very important information for the viewers mm-hmm. in that uh, Mr. Mc, uh, Mr. Quentin and his wife are kind of estranged. Mm-hmm. I forget if she talks about him having his like whole spiritual advisor guy. I don't remember, but she she basically tells us everything that we're about to meet up with. Right. She gives. She's absolutely like the exposition in the form of a dialogue. Mm-hmm. But they meet up with a young girl and kind of a fine half... British actor. Cheerio, back soon. I don't know somehow. I miss you. I love you. That's why I. And where is she from? Vikings! She plays Judith, who is the mother of the first king of England. What? Yep, Jenny Jacks. But that young girl is basically is in this like half 50s, half Indian getup. I said appropriation of the sari into a 1950s style dress. Because you know it's a sari that she's had tailored specifically to look fashionable still. Yeah, and she's definitely got, like, the bindi and the hairpiece and... Weirdly, bindi only for married women. Well, that's actually more in keeping with her character than not. Yes. uh, As we find out. Oh, I like how uh, Mrs. McCarthy thinks that's Mrs. Quinton. Honestly, at first when she was talking about, like, how she wanted to go to Lady Felicia's uh, charm school, but her dad told her that she didn't need to, I was like, oh, is she Quentin's daughter? Like, like, because she is so young, I couldn't Mm -hmm. really at the very, very first tell what that relationship was until, I think it was Harris who brought up that she was his mistress. And Harris I was like, is not a five no. British actor. <laughs> like, of all of them, he was the one I expected to be the nope. five British actor. Or at least, rather, I didn't recognize him in anything. Well, Harris, though, is the lawyer for yes. Quentin. And he also happens to be the lawyer for Lady Felicia's husband. Yes. And uh, we are, as viewers, told not to like him immediately. When she's like, oh, I don't get into my husband's business affairs. And he just goes like, oh, yes, better just to enjoy the spoils. I'm sure you've earned it. And she, this is a, this is a cutting look from Lady Felicia. Like, this look will maim you. Yes. If he wasn't already dead inside. (laughs) (laughs) He is certainly shriveled now. (laughs) So they all go into the salon for the reading. And you can tell, um. Mrs. Mrs. Quentin, the real Mrs. Quentin, not Violet, uh, is having issues coughing with the incest smoke. Um, and like Harris is waving it out of away from her. And we get straight into the most <coughs> awkward. What is what is she in? Penny Dreadful. And Midsummer Murders. What? Yep. Ruth Gemmell. That's my last one, by the way. I won't interrupt anymore. <laughs> well, that's all the people. That is literally all of the people in this fucking... She's in five episodes of Penny Dreadful. Now I'm just trying to figure out what she, who she was in Midsummer. Let's see. Well, this is a minute ago. Mm-hmm. 
She was in two episodes. House in the Woods and A Vintage Murder. A Vintage Murder? I think I just watched that. I did not recognize her at all. Yeah, I would just, I'm just slipping, is what it is. I'm slipping. You, you do not recognize her at all in Penny Dreadful. She has this severe, pulled back hair. She doesn't look like, yeah, she absolutely doesn't look like herself. That's some good acting then. Yeah. Those are literally all. Sorry, guys. No more drops. Promise. (laughs) We basically played the entire all over the musical for you at this point. (laughs) Sorry, this episode just happened to be very heavy with them, and I happened to recognize them all. (laughs) Well, we get right into the most awkward poetry recital ever. You know how awkward it was? This is the second time I've watched this, and I put it on mute both times and just read the subtitles. I hate poetry readings because I get the moths. Did I talk about the moths? I feel like I, I about don't know moths. if you've talked about the moths. Gerard Way calls secondhand embarrassment getting the moths. And so Gerard Way from my Kim Coromance. I don't know him personally. He just talked about it in an interview. But um, so now I call getting secondhand embarrassment getting the moths. And poetry reading gives me the moths. Yeah, hardcore. Yeah. Me too. And this one was even worse. It was definitely one of those things where it's like, A, clearly, Violet was clearly, clearly upset about being a mistress and not actually being a wife. Mm -hmm. Following that, Quentin, which is, I guess, in keeping with anybody British, doesn't even comment on how sexual and inappropriate her poem was for the audience, but goes on with his own poem which is clearly about something he's upset about as well, but we don't know. What's weird is that I immediately knew, even watching it the first time, I immediately knew what he was talking about. Even though it was followed by the soup, it was preceded by the super sexual poem, the anguish in his voice was like, I was like, this isn't about sex. It's about death. And then I immediately put it all together, but we're not going to. We'll get there. Yeah, I did. I mean, I knew it was clearly about something that had to do with his wife's issues, right? Mm -hmm. She obviously also reacts poorly to this poem. Mm -hmm. She doesn't say, make a face at all about violets, but then she runs out of the room Mm -hmm. and uh, he follows her. Mm -hmm. And... In the, in the ensuing scene, uh, when everybody's just standing awkwardly around this house that they were invited to, uh, <laughs> Father Brown starts going through his bookshelves, which mm-hmm. was a very relatable moment for Father Brown. Yeah, but I wouldn't pick books off of the shelf. I would look at them, but like picking them up seems a bit much. <laughs> yeah. But because he does this, we he finds out that these are medical textbooks and that Mr. Quentin used to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Quentin just kind of pops her head back in the door. She's all shaking and like very clearly bothered. And she says that Leonard is going to go f- take a nap because he's feeling really poorly. Mm-hmm. And I definitely thought she had already killed him at this point. <laughs> yeah, because she was so twitchy. Mm-hmm. She's like, no, no, no. He specifically asked not to be seen. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But for some reason or another, they think it's a great idea to stay at the house and just go take a walk around the garden. Why not? You've driven all this way. You haven't even had tea or anything. So, yeah. (laughs) Go take a walk. We don't 
really pick out favorite characters or anything like that in these episodes, but I will say my favorite scene in this entire thing is Mrs. McCarthy, like, sneakily taking a clipping (laughs) of one of his bushes. That's Mrs. McCarthy. (laughs) She clips it well. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, You know, I really like all the main characters. I really love Father Brown because I love all the main characters. I even love Bunty when she shows up. I get, I got devastated when Felicia left. This is all spoilers. Spoilers for me, but that's okay. I mean, it's not like this show is new. Yeah. (laughs) Spoilers for people listening. I don't care. Felicia leaves and I'm devastated. She goes to Kenya. Uh, and then Bunty, who is her goddaughter, becomes the plucky. Cause see, she reminds me of Tuppence from Agatha Christie's novels. So I'm like, I'm immediately into her. I'm like, yes, I could totally. I got strong lesbian vibes off of her. <laughs> well, we all need some strong lesbian vibes. The only note I made about this scene, really, is Harris is a dick about Umesh. (laughs) Harris is basically talking about how he thinks Umesh is a... Charlatan. Yeah, a con artist. Like, he's basically taking them for a ride because, for whatever reason, Leonard has decided that, you know, Hindu spirituality is for him, and Mm -hmm. therefore he has to spend money on him and whatever. What is what is odd about him having chosen Hindu spirituality is Hindu Hinduism is kind of a closed religion. They don't often take converts. And so what's what's of course interesting is two things. A that Leonard Quinton decided that this spiritual path was for him after having been in India, and B, Harris has never been to India and is making all these assumptions about Quinton's spiritual path. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing is that, like, there, while you don't necessarily have to, um, there's a lot of, obviously, today, there's a lot of appropriation of Hindu spirituality, but I think there are some very applicable things that a lot of spiritual practices do that Mm -hmm. can be ported over to anybody. Yes. And obviously, it's the 50s, so I get two fucks about appropriation. So, <laughs> but what was weird is that in the 1950s, there was that, you know, that Orientalism that was happening, mm-hmm. that looking to the East and, you know, cause Agatha Christie, all of her books settled around Egypt, writing about Egyptology and things like that. So it's the same fucking concept, just farther East. Yeah. The colonials are interested in the colonies since they're there. I mean, new and different is always interesting to anybody. Yeah. Regardless of... of... I suppose. But the Brits take it a bit much. Yeah. It's really interesting. I've been listening to a History of Britain podcast, and it's an okay podcast. Mm. But it is very informative, which is Mm. why I'm listening to it. And I found it on my... Then what do you need need me for? Well, we're in the Roman era at the moment. Um, okay. <laughs> so you need me for I the lo- I guess you need me for the local color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're the color commentator. I'm the play-by-play. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> what I thought was really interesting is that it, it's one of those things where it's like your life for native Britons was very, very clearly 
fucking terrible under the Romans. And then they turn around, you know, a millennia later and it's like, no, nope, we're going to go do the same fucking thing. Like we literally learned it's nothing. It's the vicious cycle of abuse. Yeah. <laughs> and literally so... learned nothing. No, of course it Britain. Okay. I say this belovedly, but I sit down often and think about what Britain has taken from the world and what they transformed it into. And I'm like, wow, they learnt fuck all from the 98% of the world they fucking owned. And, it's like, and I'm just like... They didn't even learn how to cook. But, so the Brits have learnt fuck all and English-speaking culture is very difficult to pin down. Like, you can pin down German culture and French culture and Swedish culture, Scandinavian culture in general, but for me, even as an English speaker, when I try to describe American and English culture, I'm at a loss. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that is. It's not because I'm being xenophobic, I don't think, but it's it's very difficult because of the cultural appropriate appropriation and the colonization mm -hmm. of uh, that English speakers have done. It's very hard to pin down their own culture. And if you're like the culture, the English speaking culture is just violent and appropriative. Everyone gets mad at you for some reason. And I'm like, well, what else have you done? <laughs> I think though, even well before you get to the colonialization of it, mm. if you think about the history of the English language, English itself is a mishmash of eight different languages all at the same time. No, definitely. Um, so I think if you, but if you think about it from that context, if you think about it like English, if you're talking about English speaking culture, English itself started as we're just going to lump everything together and see which parts stick. Mm -hmm. And I think that's frankly where it started and then you add colonialism on top of it. Yeah. So I think and the so, fact that it is something that where it is a culture of appropriation, but it's not necessarily a culture of appropriation in that we oh, yes, started to subjugate people, but it started because we see something that's good and see it and good things stick. Yeah, good things stick and then we don't really improve upon it. Like when we take a word from a culture, we don't improve upon it. Like the word the Danish word hygge, which or we take words that have a long definition and we try to marketize it or come commodify it and that's where i find it problematic like the danish idea of hygge is more than cozy sweaters and hot chocolate mm -hmm. it's the warmth of being in a place where you feel comfortable and loved well and i think that's a part of the capitalist culture of it yeah i don't i think yeah. you're talking about english speaking if you're talking about english speaking culture as a rule you have to be talking about i, I think there is a a larger older methodology there at work and and capitalism is capitalism yeah i explain this to my french students all the time people are not logical and so no language is going to be logical and english above all they've been pushed around they're from a tiny island you know the original english they they push around they used to have a good navy so they just kind of invaded places picking up things that they liked destroying things that they didn't like and you know and basically this is why we have this stupid fucking language that we have but i've always said that it's a language that lurks in dark alleys beats up other languages and rifles through their pockets looking for spare vocabulary <laughs> who said that 
I have no fucking clue. That's a good quote, though. Possibly Mark Twain. So also, while they're in the while they're in the garden, Violet looks at this painting that Quentin has put to, Mr. Quentin has put together, and she was like so proud of having sat for it nude. Yeah. But it yeah. turns out it's actually of Mrs. Quentin. Who could see that coming? No, no. But then, more fun, Mrs. McCarthy, well, they all stumble upon this tree. And Mrs. McCarthy points out that everything like around this tree pot is poisonous. Mm-hmm. And along with the tr- and she's like, I can't remember the name of the tree itself and whatever. But like, they also find a dead cat. By the grave and a gravestone. Yeah. So two things. This is where I immediately like, oh, it's a dead baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> I don't it's think a, it's it... a tiny gravestone. That's what the poem was about. <laughs> and then B, he gives last rites to that cat. <laughs> I didn't even notice. And that I was like, that is so sweet. He says he doesn't really give last rites, but he prays over the cat. And says, Lord, let us look upon every creature as a sign of your love, etc. I don't remember the rest of it. But he gives last rites to the cat. So, But Lady Felicia breaks a heel just randomly. Oh, she trips over the cat. She breaks a heel. <laughs> she trips Strains her ankle. Oh, dear. And her ridiculous black fucking stilettos. Of course you're going to fall over a dead cat. I mean, obviously, when I wear stilettos, I'm just, like, tripping over cats left and right. That reminds me, actually, of, uh, I spent Christmas, when I was studying abroad in France, I spent Christmas with a friend, and we went hiking, and I wore ballet flats hiking. Oh, no. Oh, yes. I had a good time, but, uh, my feet did not. <laughs> yeah. As, as someone who currently lives in Colorado, oh, no. <laughs> took hiking boots when I went to Iceland. That's good. I'm proud proud of your growth. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, uh, Harris goes back to the uh, house to get some first aid stuff for uh, Lady Felicia and then the other guys carry her back to the house. And Harris kind of walks into the front hall and overhears Violet confronting Leonard about how he's never going to marry her and she wishes he was dead and she's lost everything and whatever. Everything beating basically her reputation. As they come up the drive, Lady Felicia spies Leonard's feet dangling in the window. So this episode relies heavily on tropes about suicide. And if you find yourself struggling with any of the topics that we are about to discuss, there are many, many online resources, phone numbers, and even text message services that you could use to discuss them with a uh, with someone who cares about you. That is a good warning. Isn't that so British of me? <laughs> At the end of episodes of shows that have had serious discussions with suicide or with uh, mental health issues, they always... Uh, have a, like, bbc.co.uk slash, uh, backslash we care. Or something like that. I don't know. So I just thought I might mention that. I don't know any of them offhand, but we will tweet them when we post this. Mm -hmm. backslash we care. 
Error, page not found. Oh, okay. boo. BBC no longer cares. <laughs> There's something about it. I'm sure. I know. I, I believe you 100%. Like, I've seen that too. But uh, no, uh, thank you so much for that warning. That was a great warning. So I think my, the thing that I particularly, like, as a cozy mystery fan, enjoyed, like, I thought this was like a little nod to cozy mystery and mystery viewers as a rule, mm-hmm. was that he was found with a rope in the conservatory. Yeah. Yes. Mr. Bobby. Exactly. With a rope in the conservatory. But the feet, seeing the feet dangling, my mother told me she babysat this girl. Once again, this is why we had the warning at the beginning. My mother babysat this one girl and she was bringing the girl home and the mother wouldn't open the door. The door was locked and she kept knocking, knocking, knocking. So she peeked in through the letter, the, the um, door open at and all she saw was this woman's feet <gasps> oh no so that seeing Quentin's feet reminded me of that story that my mother told and I was like oh god <laughs> like I can't so she yeah this woman had just killed herself oh just, god while the babysitter had her kid yeah oh so my mother Ooh. almost had to call police and things like that and try to shield the girl from this horror that had happened to her and so Violet's reaction was actually quite realistic for someone not expecting, like, uh, maybe a little overwrought, but this is Well, I think she's just an overwrought kind of person. Yeah, but, but so this is the 1950s, and I guess that's just what women are like. Well, I think, well, I thought that was one of those things. It was like, it was, they were specifically having Violet overwrought to show that Mrs. Quinton was not. Yes. Like, she barely reacted at all. And they were specifically just trying to highlight, I think, the difference between the two women and how they dealt with grief. Obviously, they call up the inspector. So we get get our, our first look at Hugo. Because it's 1950s. And he finds a suicide note and I die by my own hand is what it says. And Mrs. Quentin reconfirms that is Leonard's handwriting. As much as I adore Lady Felicia, they go into this like sitting room off the court off the conservatory where she's got her foot propped up and whatever. And she just goes, What a perfectly awful day. <laughs> no shit. Felicia. <laughs> <laughs> like yes. it, it very much felt like she was talking about like it was one of those it's like you've got his wife right here <laughs> like and then his mistress is right there and like you're talking about oh what a perfectly awful day like <laughs> i don't know it definitely sounded like she was more talking about like how her heel broke than mm-hmm. and discovering a dead body versus at this point, she's she's hung out with Father Brown enough that she's like, okay, dead bodies are just part and parcel of being acquaintances with Father Brown. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just that one person you always hang out with that something bad always happens when you hang out with him. Like, yes. nothing. And then you're like, well, I guess this is just the price of being your mate. And I am that mate, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. Not dead bodies, but Thank God. bad things. Bad things. <laughs> I didn't really... The thing that I did, didn't did quite appreciate is just how 
openly hostile Mrs. McCarthy is to Lady Felicia. Hey, she's Irish. Yes. But also, <laughs> I mean, it, yes. Okay, there is. <laughs> I should give that more weight than I just did. Yeah. But at the same time, like, in the very first episode, she was, like, talking about the Countess and, like, kind of, like, ooh, the Countess is going to come. Mm-hmm. And now that, like, we're three episodes in, she's, like, openly hostile to this woman. Well, once you get to know the Countess and how fucking useless she is, you're like, yeah, fuck that. We are, well, you and I love Lady Felicia because we want to be Lady Felicia or sleep with her. Or both. Depending. Or both. I'm fine with just... One day being a black lady, Felicia. I think I'm... Life goals, wife goals, one of the two. I'm partly there. <laughs> you've got the accent anyway. I have got the accent. I've got the tailor. And and the housekeeper. <laughs> and the housekeeper. You see, I just need the, the Rolls Royce. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> just that part. Father Brown, while they're all waiting around in this room again, takes some liberties and starts playing around with the ink and the blotter that um, mm-hmm. uh, Leonard keeps on his desk. CSI people must be like shivering. He kind of determines that he has a aha moment. Of course he does. But Lady Felicia reveals that she only met Quentin about two weeks ago at a gala and she was extremely hungover after this gala. Um, but she does recall Umesh being there. Father Brown find, decides that even though he kind of has a, an idea he wants to go talk to Umesh himself, I felt like this was actually one of the more like true-to-life parts of this entire episode, where Father Brown introduces himself to Umesh, like, over-enunciating everything. Like, like, like Umesh can't understand English. He stops as soon as Umesh answers him in fine English. He doesn't continue yeah. on with his racistness. Look, he over-announces. He doesn't shout. Yeah, no, he over-enunciates. Yeah, it, that's... The Which thing. is good. No, you should always over-enunciate if you assume someone doesn't speak your language rather than yelling at them. Like, screaming at them isn't going to help. But over-enunciating, if they don't speak the language, will help. And that helps me. That helped me in Iceland when mm-hmm. I knew about three sentences and then my... My Swedish failed me, and so they were like, "Oh, okay, we can we can work with you." So, so that's another thing that I found interesting is that Father Brown knew that shouting doesn't help, but we know he was a chaplain in World War Two, so he probably mm-hmm. had to deal with French and you know other Allied troops. So, but he does have a good conversation with Umesh, and Umesh talks about how Mr. Quentin was a, an extremely private person and. That he came back with them, not just as, like, a spiritual advisor, but obviously he worked at a botanical garden, and that's where they met. Yes. And that's why he gardens for them now. Yes. And when Father Brown suggests the idea of a dead child, he just gets very defensive and basically stops the conversation. Mm -hmm. Which immediately, okay, there's a dead child. There's clearly a dead child, yeah. So everyone gathers in the parlor... And Father Brown reveals what he knows about, he learned from the ink blotter, mm-hmm. which is that Mr. Quentin was left-handed. And I actually really liked this scene because I felt mm-hmm. like it undid a bunch of what last episode did. It let Inspector Valentine come to his own conclusion, mm-hmm. which was that Mr. Quentin couldn't have hanged himself. Because of the knot. Because of the knot. A lot of last episode was spent 
making him seem kind of foolish. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, was an episode that really didn't do that at all. Well, yeah. obviously, Father Brown solved every- what was going on. Mm-hmm. He was following police procedure. He mm-hmm. was, you know, intelligent in his own right. Mm-hmm. He, you know, the, the de- conclusions that he came to made sense to me as a viewer. Mm-hmm. They also start reading out the will. Because mm-hmm. I guess Harris is there and he knows what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Quentin gets the house. But recently, uh, Mr. Quentin had, had changed his will and Umesh got left everything else. Ooh. Martha gets left the house. Nothing for Miss Violet. Nothing for Violet. One thing I did note here is in this scene specifically, and because of other scenes before, it's painfully obvious that Harris is in love with Mrs. Quentin. Yeah, you saw that from the beginning when he was like, when he was so vitriolic towards both Violet and Leonard. And then mm-hmm. also when he was standing near Martha and uh, waving away the incense smoke. Mm-hmm. Which, why the fuck are you standing next to the incense burner? I know you want to stand next to the window and let the sunlight wash over your pale features like you're in some <laughs> kind of gothic romance novel but for fuck's sake if the smoke is bothering you move away from the smoke you have two legs you can use them i'm sorry was that a bit much no i i feel you i i did actually really like there was an interesting conversation here between umesh and father brown and i thought this brought back some of the things that i really liked about the first episode too Mm -hmm. when father brown gets challenged on his religious beliefs and religious doctrines and father brown really made me like him again in this episode he doesn't like hedge his bets or anything but what i find interesting is i 100 percent believe that as a war chaplain he probably had long talks with God about what the fuck he was doing as a war chaplain and what the fuck he was supposed to be accomplishing. Imagine what he must have seen mm-hmm. as a chaplain of war. My master's degree is both a, as a master of the arch and a master's of theology. I will be, after I get my master's degree, able to be a chaplain in any military. And But I read about chaplaincy, German chaplaincy, during World War II. And these German chaplains having to soothe the souls of Nazis. And I cannot see myself doing that. Well, I'm pretty sure you do have a choice. <laughs> As a German chaplain, I, you know, you know, this isn't World War II anymore. But you're soothing the soul of someone who's killing somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's specifically against every religion. Islam has a small block of you can protect your family like if someone is threatening if someone is trying to kill your wife and children kill them so but that's that's very rare that's something that's you know not going to be happening you don't go out and war is pretty much a huge sin so i can't imagine comforting soldiers who have taken the lives of other people no matter how much I enjoy working for governments in general, I can't imagine doing that. So it's one of those it's one of those moments when I think of Father Brown often when he's confronted with questions of what God would allow this suffering. Because he says he likes rational explanations. And yeah. and Umesh is like, 
The fuck you mean? Rational explanations. Water into wine. Walking on water. Feeding thousands with a loaf of bread. Like, hello? So it's very interesting. But I also think of Father Brown sometimes. The reason that he's so thoughtful and questioning is because he did have to comfort people who were killing people. Well, and I do think the other thing is that he specifically says to Umesh's question, you can't take the Bible literally. Yeah, and people who do, people who do, and I found this as a Muslim person very uh, close to my heart, in that people who read the Quran as a literal statement are Daesh. They're some of the worst people in the world. They're terrorists. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and But then I think about Christians who take the word of God Same literally. Thing. And I'm like, well, they're also terrorists. Yep. Just, <laughs> just we don't call them terrorists because they're not brown. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I did like that particular exchange because I thought it gave me a lot of really good insight into Father Brown. Mm -hmm. And I do think that it does help help you as a viewer, especially accept him as a murder solver in mm -hmm. that he is always looking for more rational explanations. He's never willing to leave something up to God if he can find something. Yeah, and of course it's it's a it's a Sherlock Holmes thing. Mm -hmm. English tropes, we have American tropes. American tropes are all about CSI and, you know, police detectives and stuff like that. We have the tropes about that. But in England, a crazy mystery is always going to have two tropes. Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. And you will always be able to trace them back to those two. And, and that might be British culture. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's we have uncovered British culture. <laughs> Father Brown goes to confront Mrs. Clinton about the child. And she basically confesses everything that happened. Um, he immediately knows that she's about to confess by mm -hmm. making her the bedpost a confessional. I really like that, that he turns away from her so that she can confess. There is comfort in ritual. And it's why I actually really love going to Catholic churches. Because there, there is a strange comfort in knowing that Catholic churches have the same ritual, that Eastern Orthodox churches have the same ritual, and that even if you're not a member of that faith, you fall into the ritual. Mm -hmm. And the ritual helps you become closer to God. I might be more religious than you, Carolyn. I, I'm not sure because we talked about this in another episode that I have never had a negative experience with religion. Religion has always just enriched my life. So when I go and I visit someone's church, the ritual comforts me because I know that it's, it's setting me up for a conversation with God no matter how I do that ritual. I think this is why I like Father Brown so much, is because there are things I expect, and he does not let me down with those expectations. Well, so we do get some really important information from her. Basically, the Quentin's child was born deformed, mm -hmm. and right after he took off to India, and he was there for about three months, mm -hmm. and right after he got back, that's when their baby died. Mm -hmm. And she realizes now that the poem was about their child, not about... And, or like, the poem was about their child and she thought it was designed to hurt her. And then she says that that was the only way he can express himself. And the imagery that he used to describe 
how this thing falling out of Malta, falling out, mm-hmm. slithering, this white lump, bone on bone. I read the, I remember I read the subtitles, because the moths. Yeah, definitely <laughs> so, the subtitles on, don't you worry. Because <laughs> the moths. And so, and so, that's why I knew I, when I, I thought it was a miscarriage. Yeah, at first I definitely thought like it was it was stillborn actually. Yeah, I I knew it wasn't stillborn, and it reminded me, God, what is that show? It might have been Penny Dreadful when a when a child is born of a demon and a woman, how it comes out, and it comes out white and red and mottled and angry with teeth and red eyes, and. I was heavily reminded of that. So, in my brain, it wasn't dead, but it was horrific. Mm-hmm. And it was a child that you would have instantly... So, I thought Martha was going to confess that she killed that child because it came out deformed. Yeah. Well, once I figured out that it was... Like, it when, I, still when I heard yeah. that poem, I was like, she gave birth to a child that she thought was a demon <laughs> and killed it. I thought this was going in a whole different direction. <laughs> Well, I mean, there were also notes of spirituality in the whole thing. So, like, that would make sense. Deformed children were considered children of Satan at the time. So best to kill them. Well, I don't know about that. Or but best to I, hide them. So, Well, so, okay. So, we, just real quick, um, there's, like, a little red herring with a mesh and whatever. Lady Felicia shaves him, saves him. Of course, uh, they always thought, arrest the fauna first, so I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds Yeah, right. yeah. Well, I mean, he did get all of that money from the will, so Inspector Valentine mm-hmm. was arresting him because of that. I like Violet, unless he killed him to save, save the lepers. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> well, but I thought then, after that, Inspector Valentine basically explains how the murder happened, or at least how the body came to be hanging. Mm-hmm. We find out literally right after the scene that Leonard pres- had prescribed a mer- morning sickness drug to Mrs. Quentin. And they don't ever call it out in this episode. But I, along with Cozy Mysteries, apparently watch really sappy dramas about childbirth. <laughs> well, so, but the I because of this, I knew exactly what they were talking about. So... If you watch Call the Midwife, which I do, you will have seen an entire story arc about this. And the drug itself was called thalidomide. And that's really, really excellent story arc in Call the Midwife. But what happened was in Germany that this had been prescribed and they saw saw these birth defects. But at the same time, the drug kind of hailed as a miracle drug for morning sickness, came over to the UK. It spread throughout the entire world, actually. But it was a huge scandal in the UK. Mm. And um, this also helped put together what our kind of time frame is for Father Brown, because last episode we thought it was early 1950s, but thalidomide was actually only ever licensed in the UK from 1958 onward and was only actually developed and used in West Germany as of 1957. All right, so we have a late, we have a late, but that seems a little late. So this could be, it might be that it's just 
what are they called? Uh, anachronism. It's just an anachronism. Because we have later episodes where they're still rationing. And rationing would have been over by 1957-58. Well, so this is clearly then one of those issues where it's like that they were trying to write in something that they felt was relevant to the 1950s but didn't actually do their homework. But I think if you are interested at all in the history of thalidomide, that that is a real, real thing that definitely happened to much of the UK. People used thalidomide into the 80s. There was still thalidomide babies in... Well, well, yes. Not in developed nations, quote-unquote developed nations. Well, so what, what, per Wikipedia, it was withdrawn in the UK in 1961. Mm. So it was only available from 1958 through 1961. However, they do think that in um, Spain, it was used up until potentially the 1980s. Yeah. So, and not only that, it was used in the Philippines. It oh, was used. Yeah. No, I'm saying it in, in under, not in underdeveloped nations. It was still <laughs> being used very late on. So that's why Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fighter has the little mind in the 80s shit he was singing about. But in the meantime, Father Brown goes to reinspect the body and he finds some white goo on an umbrella. Mm. And once again, the roving eye of suspicion is cast upon Mrs. Quentin. Of course it is. Which, if you were as weird and like, oh, he can't see anyone, I would also suspect Mrs. I definitely did. I definitely did. Right then, when she said that. I didn't, but I I felt like she knew what was happening. So, I never suspected her. Well, but because Harris was in love with Mrs. Q, he confesses to hanging Leonard. And he says he did it pretty much exactly as the inspector said which was, you know, feather in the cap for Inspector Valentine. Yes. But Father Brown goes, oh, no, 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 honey. <laughs> Leonard was already dead. I know, in your haste to kill him. He didn't <laughs> notice that he was like, this is not a murder. And then he asked to see the notebook. That the suicide note was in. Yeah, the suicide note was in. And he turns a few pages over. There's a suicide note, which is, you know, not as... Is much more poetic than the one that Harris mm-hmm. scribbles. I don't know why I'm doing your job. <laughs> <laughs> you can do my job. It's fine. We're all good. It's you know, fine. saves my throat a little. Exactly. But Harris does say that he only reason he did it is because he thought Mrs. Quentin was about to kill him. Yeah, I know. She he was like, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I he guess. was like, oh, we've seen her stop stockpiling sleeping pills, and I wanted to stop her doing something. I didn't want her to fucking kill a man. <laughs> and literally at that moment, everyone's like, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, God! Let's go save this woman. And they do. They rush into her bedroom. They find her about to down a bunch of pills. And this was the, the scene that really made me come back around to Father Brown after the disaster that last episode really was for him. Yeah. And how he confronts her and he shows her such great compassion and it gives her exactly what she needs from a priest. Which he already had given her by letting her take, or taking her confession. Mm-hmm. Like, we knew that he will welcome back any wayward soul into the flock. Mm-hmm. Which is what a good religious person does. You do not just cast the sinner out. You let them back into the community at their lowest. And you should. 
this is one of those moments when this doesn't just apply to priests. When someone comes and asks for forgiveness, unless they're a pedophile or a rapist, let's, let's get this clear. There are some people who are beyond forgiveness, but for someone like a woman who has lost a child and thinks it's her fault for taking something that made her feel better, which is what this woman did, you take them back in. Mm-hmm. What I like about Father Brown is that he knows a victim when he sees one. And Martha Quinton is a victim. She's a victim of guilt. She's a victim of a man who who committed suicide mm-hmm. because his pain was obviously greater than hers. He's a victim. She's a victim of his, this man who promised to love her and forever fucking off to India for three months and taking a mistress at the same time. This is why I like Father Brown, because unlike real life religious <laughs> leaders, he's actually what a religious leader should do is when you're at everything's lowest... better when it's scripted. <laughs> Uh, we get three buttons on the episode. We have a lot to end up with. I know. Well, we get Lady and Felicia and Mrs. McCarthy kind of coming to an agreement not to be so openly hostile to each other. But in a very British manner where they don't actually talk about how they've been openly hostile to each other. No, because they haven't been openly hostile to each other, darling. They've been Britishly hostile to each other. <laughs> we get uh, Father Brown and Inspector Valentine's talking... Uh, you know, just kind of talking a little bit about his role. Because they were talking about, they were talking about showing God's light. Yes, that's And he goes even to the atheists, and he goes especially the atheists, which is funny. That was, no, that was a great line. And then, we, of course, we get the much-needed funeral for Olivia. Did you figure it out? I did. With the cat. That's what I figured out first time. This was my second watch through. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I didn't really, really remember what had happened, but I knew it was one of those ones where it would, it seemed like one person did it and then a totally different person did it. But I knew Mrs. Quentin and, and Harris were involved and I knew like my first reaction of, oh, she already killed him was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely thought Harris did it. And uh-huh. so to that extent... I was right-ish. <laughs> but he was already dead. He strung him up. Yeah, he did string him up. So I don't remember if I... I don't remember on my first watch through if I thought it was suicide. I did on the second watch through kind of have this like back of my head. I think maybe this is suicide voice going on. Mm-hmm. So I can't really... I can't really say I didn't get it, but I also can't say I did get it. I think that really where... It was, you could tell that he was not well, was with the poem, and it was an apology. And even though he never said Olivia's name, which was where, like, where Father Brown kind of saved Martha's life by saying her name, he Mm -hmm. was, he was saying, I killed my daughter, and nothing will ever, nothing will ever change that fact. No, you know what I remember now is I remember thinking when Violet was yelling at him that he was already dying. Mm. Because he didn't respond to her at all. Mm. Yeah. That he, and, yeah, that he looked so pale and like was just staring yes. at her. But I so, definitely thought he had been poisoned. Mm-hmm. Well, so you're think, not wrong. He did poison himself. By somebody else. I thought he had been poisoned by somebody else. 
Um, so I think on my first watch through, what I thought was that Mrs. Quentin had poisoned him and then Harris had strung him up. And so I think, so I don't, I will say I did not get it. I'll just go definitively. I did not get it. My first watch through. Did you like this episode? I did. For the last rites to the animal, the four out of five fucking British actors. No, um, I liked it for everyone's characterization and it reminded me strongly of an Agatha Christie novel. So. Yeah, well, so I liked it for kind of the same reasons. I felt like this episode was a little over the top, mm-hmm. but I liked that. I liked the camp of it. Mm-hmm. I liked how. I liked how every, over the top everybody was. And I really, really appreciated, number one, that Father Brown became a compassionate man again, which we saw in the first episode. Mm-hmm. But then the second episode, he had this kind of self-righteousness about him that I yeah. really turned me off. And then I really, really liked uh, that they, again, made Inspector Valentine an actually, like, competent detective. Mm-hmm. Again, that was something that in the second episode, they really fucked up. They basically made him a bumbling fool, and I didn't appreciate that at all. Yeah. I wonder if you wrote the second episode and then the first episode. Oh, the second episode and this episode. Nicola Washington, I think, wrote this one. Or Nicola something. Well, I have the IMDb up so I can find out. Okay. Uh, Writers, uh... Two more credits. So it was developed by Rachel Flowerday, which it always is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this one, the second episode, The Flying Stars, was written by Rachel Flowerday. Okay. And Maybe she shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, and The Wrong Shape was written by Nicola Wilson. Hats off to Nicola. She wrote a good episode. That happens. I like when there's one writer. Well, oh. you know, let's see who wrote, uh... The first one? The first one was written by Tassin, or Tassin Gunner, Gunner, mm-hmm. um, who is also one of the developed by credits, as always, but, um, so I think maybe Rachel doesn't necessarily just have as good of a grasp on it. Yeah, yeah, that happens, it happens. How did you like your wine? Uh, it was actually not terrible, I'm almost done with it. <laughs> um, wow! Um, it it was a small bottle. It was a very thin bottle. Um, <laughs> it's got a it's got a Mardi Gras mask on it, and nice. it's got some really cool uh, glass uh, glass designs in it. So it's a very dramatic bottle of wine, but it is very dry. There's no sweetness at all. Um, it doesn't have any pithy text on the back telling you this goes good with what the fuck ever but apparently it goes good with uh seafood <laughs> but um but it's quite good out of 10 how would you give it how would you rate it out of 10 seven and a half i'm very see this is the problem i don't give things tens well you don't have to give it a 10 i know but i don't give things tens so knowing that knowing that nine is probably my highest score that i'm ever going to give a wine Seven and a half is pretty good. This fire steed was is quite tasty. I'm really enjoying it. Um, it does have some pithy text on it. Yeah. Um, it's got exuberant cherry and berry fruit flavors and aroma. I would say that it's been 
quite a lovely drink. It's actually, for a wine that has, talks about the fruit flavors so much, it actually is quite dry, which I prefer. I like my wine slightly sweeter, but not overly sweet. Slightly sweet. Slightly. No, I'm a drier person. So I would definitely give this one a solid, I'm not a, I will give a wine a 10 if it's a 10, but uh, I would give this easy, an easy nine. Oh yeah. I drink good wine. Also, this was a present, so I think it's a better wine. It's always, you always get like half a point when you don't have to buy it yourself. <laughs> I don't get gifts because I don't have any friends. <laughs> just gotta have a housewarming party. Just gotta have a housewarming party. Well, I've been in here since like February of last year. So they don't to... know that. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you want to learn more about wine, uh, or t- that's a total lie. If you want to follow us on our Twitters, I talk a lot about hockey. I'm at Classlicity. <laughs> and I talk about nothing but politics. Sorry, if you are interested in nothing but politics in multiple languages, I'm at And potentially S- being invited to a housewarming party. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can find me at SDM Rights. And you can follow our official Twitter at Wine Murder Night. Where you will find a link to uh, suicide help resources across the world. So any international the International Association for Suicide Prevention, we will link to their website, which has phone numbers and websites for suicide prevention hotlines and other prevention services all around the world. And if you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and subscribe on iTunes, tell your friends, do a watch party, watch the episode, and then listen to the podcast. And if you leave us a five-star review, tell us what you liked about the show, we will give you a nice little toast shout-out on next week's episode, which we will be watching, which I had pulled up, and then we started looking at writers. (laughs) All right, we will be watching The uh, the Man in the Tree. We always have to give a special shout-out to Anton Koryakov, who wrote Simple Life, uh, which is our theme song. It comes off the album Restart. Or Restart. Or rest start. We don't really know. There's some capitalization going on there. Spasiba. <laughs> Till next time. <laughs>